You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In 1873, French writer Jules Verne published Around the World in 80 Days. In the novel, an Englishman, Phileas Fogg, and his French valet attempt to circumnavigate the world in 80 days for a wager of 20,000 pounds. The book was a huge success. Fast forward to 1888, and an American journalist, Nellie Bly, a 24-year-old woman from Pennsylvania, would suggest to her editor that she try and beat Fogg on a round-the-world trip. The newspaper initially rejected her idea, but a year later, Bly, on just two days' notice, would undertake the challenge, setting up a race with a rival publication that would capture the attention of the world. As you can imagine, today's episode of the Explorers podcast is going to be a little different. It may not be a classic sail-the-ship-into-the-unknown tale, but it is an adventure, and our star, Nellie Bly, is an amazing woman. I hope you enjoy it. So, let us start with some background. Nellie Bly was born in Cochran's Mills, about 35 miles from Pittsburgh, on May 5, 1864. Her birth name was Elizabeth Jane Cochran. She was known as pink to her friends and family due to the fact that she loved the color. Elizabeth Cochran's father would die when she was only six. Unfortunately, he had not left a will, and according to Pennsylvania law, his wife could not inherit his estate. It was therefore divided amongst his nine grown children from his previous marriage, leaving Elizabeth's mother with little to support her five children. Elizabeth's mother would remarry three years later, but the marriage was not a happy one as the new husband was abusive. A divorce would leave the family penniless. From all of this, Elizabeth Cochran would learn how difficult, and at times unfair, it was for a woman to survive in the world. Initially, Elizabeth Cochran wanted to become a teacher, but the lack of family funds kept her from attending a decent school. The family would move to Pittsburgh in 1880, and Elizabeth would help her mother run a boarding house while she worked various jobs. Then, in January of 1885, Elizabeth Cochran, now 21 years old, read an editorial in the Pittsburgh Dispatch entitled, What Girls Are Good For. The article stated that women were essentially good at having children and keeping house, and admonished them for trying to gain an education or have a career. The young Elizabeth was angered by the article and wrote back a scathing rebuttal, signing it Little Orphan Girl. The newspaper's editor, George Madden, was so impressed by the reply that he published it. He then tracked down the author, Elizabeth Cochran, and offered her a chance to write another article for the paper. The result was another success, and Madden offered Elizabeth Cochran a full-time job writing for the Pittsburgh Dispatch. 
Now, at this time, female writers usually wrote under pseudonyms. According to a legend, as George Madden was trying to come up with a pen name for his new writer, he heard a boy whistling a tune. That tune was Nellie Bly, a popular song written by Stephen Foster. And thus, Elizabeth Jane Cochran would become Nellie Bly. Now, at this time, only about 2% of the journalists in America were women. They typically were limited to writing about things such as fashion, cooking, shopping, theater, society, and gardening. But very quickly, Nellie Bly proved to be a very different sort of writer. She eschewed the typical women subjects for things that she knew about, in particular, the struggles of women and working people. At one point, Bly wrote a series of articles detailing the lives of poor women working in terrible conditions in Pittsburgh bottle factories. These articles were met with acclaim, but not from the business community, who did not like these harsh exposés of their labor practices. So, when businesses threatened to pull advertising from the paper, Bly was reassigned to the gardening section. Unhappy with her new assignment, Bly decided it was time for a change, and she decided to head to Mexico. Her intent was to write a travelogue, which were quite popular at the time. Instead, Bly would end up sending back dispatches detailing the horrific conditions faced by the local people, as well as the abuses of the Mexican government, led by President Porfirio Diaz. In one article, she wrote that Mexico was, quote, a republic in name only, end quote. Attacking the president of the country did not go unnoticed by Mexican officials. In fact, Diaz had arrested other foreign journalists for criticizing his regime. So when word reached Bly that she was in the crosshairs of Diaz's wrath, she fled the country. Bly would later publish a book about her time abroad called Six Months in Mexico. Now back in the United States, Nellie Bly found that little had changed. She was again assigned to write for the Society and Theater pages. Determined to do more, in 1887, she headed to New York, hoping to land a job with one of the big newspapers. But after four months of rejections, she found herself almost penniless and no job offers. Desperate for work, Bly walked into the offices of John Cockrell, the managing editor of the Joseph Pulitzer newspaper The New York World, or just The World, as it was called. The World was one of the nation's leading newspapers. Cockrell was impressed by Bly's determination, but he did not have a position for her. The work that she wanted to do was handled by men. However, he did have an idea. While most investigative reporting was done by men for the newspaper, there were times that only a woman could get the true inside scoop, and he had such a challenge, the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island. There had been reports of abuses within the asylum, but no one could get in and find out the real truth. This led Nellie Bly agreeing to go undercover as a patient at the asylum. Her plan was to convince the facility's doctors that she was insane and get committed. The plan worked, and after ten days, representatives of the world would secure Bly's release. The subsequent stories printed by the newspaper would cause a sensation, as Bly's reporting exposed a horrid world of brutality and neglect. Bly would say that the place was, quote, hell on earth, end quote. The asylum would be forced to implement many reforms, and the 23-year-old Nellie Bly would become famous. Her ordeal would later be published as a book, Ten Days in a Madhouse. Bly's audacious undercover reporting would land her a regular job as a writer for the world, making $12 a week. Over the next two years, Nellie Bly would write many articles, focusing on investigative journalism, often going undercover to get her stories. Some topics she tackled included poor working conditions at factories and rooting out corrupt politicians. Once she even arranged to buy a baby, exposing the city's white slave trade. She became known for her passionate work, but also for being entertaining. 
In addition to her more serious journalism, audiences loved when she would write about famous people or report about what it was like to work at a strange job. To this end, she trained with the boxing champion John L. Sullivan and spent time as a chorus girl. She even did a report on an amazing young blind girl, Helen Keller. It was a golden mix, a young woman with a sense of adventure, combining her passion with her natural sense of the dramatic. Bly became so popular, she received up to 200 letters a week, including marriage proposals, as well as threats. Because, let's remember, politicians and business people do not like their slimy dealings to be written about in the paper. The world's owner, Joseph Pulitzer, would call her plucky, and it was a term that was used often for her, and it fit. And then, in 1888, Bly had the idea to travel around the world, in an attempt to beat the fictitious Phileas Fogg from the Jules Verne novel. As noted, travel stories were popular at this time. Bly envisioned that this was not just an attempt to circumnavigate the globe, but an opportunity to write about the places and the people she would encounter. After pitching her concept, Bly was informed that the newspaper had already tossed around the idea of sending someone on such a venture. However, the paper felt that a man would be better suited for the task. They didn't think a woman would be able to make the trip without some sort of escort or protector. Plus, she was told, women require so many bags, it would hinder her progress. And so, the idea was nixed, but it was not forgotten. In the meantime, Bly went back to her regular job, working tirelessly as a reporter. In a two-year period from 1887 to 1889, Bly said that she worked every single day for two straight years. During this time, she would even try her hand writing fiction, penning a not particularly well-reviewed novel titled The Mystery of Central Park. Fast forward to November 12, 1889. Nellie Bly was called to the New York World's office. Her editor asked, quote, Can you start around the world day after tomorrow? End quote. Bly responded that she could start that minute. And so the game was on. So why this sudden push for the trip? As noted, the idea had been proposed by others, including reporters at the World. It was only a matter of time before someone tried it. Perhaps the paper got wind that a rival publication was working on such a journey. We really don't know. No matter, Bly and her editor quickly came up with a plan. She would leave in two days on the ocean liner Augusta Victoria, which was owned by the Hamburg American Line. The ship was one of the newest of the great luxury liners that were beginning to travel across the Atlantic. The Augusta Victoria was perfect for Bly's journey, as it was one of the swiftest ships on the seas. Just a few months earlier, it had set a record for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic, seven days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes. Now let's remember, a year before, the newspaper had had objections to Bly going on this journey. They had felt that she couldn't do it alone, and that she would have too much baggage which would delay her. However, this time, the paper would relent and allow her to go without an escort, but they would plan out the adventure and arrange for someone to meet with her at various connections around the world whenever possible. Plus, they would provide Bly with letters of introduction, which she could present to any ship or rail official, asking for their assistance in the journey. And in reality, the plan was for her to be on trains and ships virtually the entire time. As long as she made her connections, she would be safe. And as for luggage, well, we will get to that in a moment. The plan was to travel by ship to England, cross over to France, and then take a train to Brindisi, a port on the eastern shore of Italy. From there, it was a ship to Egypt, through the Suez Canal, and then on to Aden, in modern-day Yemen. From Aden, it was on to Ceylon, which we now call Sri Lanka. Another ship would take her to Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then another to Japan. From there, it would be a long ocean voyage to San Francisco, and finally a transcontinental train ride to New York. Bly figured she could complete the journey in 75 days, 
Well within the 80 days Phileas Fogg had wrapped up his fictitious trip. The newspaper would post our itinerary, but that was subject to change. Also, the world pledged that they would not charter private transportation, ships or trains, as they wanted this to be more than a publicity stunt. They wanted to demonstrate that Bly could travel around the world just like any other American. There would be no special treatment. The issue that Bly faced was that each leg of the journey risked delay. There could be storms or mechanical problems, or railroads could get damaged or blocked by snow. And there was also illness to consider. Who knew what sicknesses were lurking in the tropics or on a cold ocean voyage? Any issue might delay or end her journey. But for Nellie Bly, she dismissed these potential problems. She saw opportunity, and she was going to seize it. However, she only had two days to prepare for her worldwide trek. Bly was determined not to slow herself down with excess baggage. Thus, she would allow herself one bag for the journey. Ultimately, she would have a single dress, which she would wear, plus a black and white plaid overcoat. The dress was durable, yet practical and attractive. She would carry one sturdy leather bag. If something didn't fit, she didn't bring it. Her goal was to never have to wait for a ship or train to load or unload her bags. Also, she wanted to dispel the notion that a woman could not travel without an overload of luggage. In her bag, Bly would pack two caps, three veils, slippers, toiletries, pens, pencils, ink, paper, pins, needles, and thread. She also had several complete changes of underwear, handkerchiefs, a small flask, and a drinking cup, plus a jar of cold cream to keep her face from chapping. The latter was one of the few luxuries that she allowed herself. She also brought along five copies of the New York World, the edition announcing her departure. Interestingly, she refused to pack a revolver, although it was suggested by more than one person. As for money, Bly had 200 pounds of English gold as well as Bank of England notes. English money was generally accepted anywhere in the world. She also brought along American currency as well, as she wanted to find out if she could use it at her stops around the world. All of this she kept in a pouch tied around her neck. So Bly was set to sail on November 14, 1889, but the newspaper realized that there was one major problem. She did not have a passport. The paper quickly dispatched a man to Washington, D.C., and a temporary one was issued to her and returned to Bly just five hours before her departure. Thus, problem averted. Now, one quick note about Nellie Bly's journey around the world. She was trying to accomplish the task in under 80 days, and thus beat Phileas Fogg from around the world in 80 days. However, at this time, I could not find out exactly what was the world record for traveling around the globe. I'm guessing no one really kept the information as it was never really mentioned by Bly or any of her biographers. It is safe to say that it wasn't faster than 80 days, as no one is reported to have ever traveled faster than Phileas Fogg. Ultimately, it's not really a big deal, but I did want to mention it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Nellie Bly set sail on November 14, 1889, at 9.40 a.m. from New York on the Augusta Victoria. 
The steamship was massive, able to carry more than a thousand passengers plus a crew of 245. Now, before we get going with Nellie Bly on her around-the-world trip, let's hop back to New York, because if you have noticed, the title of this episode is Nellie Bly and the Race Around the World. You might be thinking that the race was against Phileas Fogg, but you would be wrong. The title exists because when word got out about Bly's endeavor, another New York paper, Cosmopolitan, yes, that is the same Cosmo that still exists today, decided to send their own correspondent on a journey around the world, essentially racing Nellie Bly. Cosmopolitan, which was a monthly publication, would send Elizabeth Bislin, the opposite way around the world, determined to beat the New York world and Nellie Bly at their own game. It was an audacious attempt to upstage a rival. Elizabeth Bislin was a successful 28-year-old freelance New York-based writer, well-educated and sophisticated. She came from an upper-class Southern family that had lost its fortune due to the American Civil War. Like Nellie Bly, Bislin had seen how hard economic times could devastate a family, in particular, women. When contemplating his challenge to Nellie Bly and the New York world, Cosmopolitan editor John Brisbane Walker decided that he would send a woman, as he felt that sending a man would appear unfair, and he did not want to make his paper unsympathetic. So, Walker turned to Bislin. Within hours of Bly's departure, he presented a plan to the young woman. He proposed that she go west instead of east. He felt that the weather would be to her advantage. Walker figured that Bly would run up against strong winds in the South China Seas and lose several days of travel time, while Bislin would take advantage of those winds. Also, Bly proposed to travel across America in late January, when the weather in the western mountains was incredibly unpredictable. It was not uncommon for the railroads to get blocked up for days during that time frame. By leaving now, Bislin would avoid the snows that would plague the Rocky Mountains in two to three months. The only problem for Walker was that Bislin did not really want the job. Elizabeth Bislin was not interested in becoming a story, like Nellie Bly. She liked the anonymity of writing about things, not about being written about. And she dreaded leaving New York, which she loved. However, John Brisbane Walker was not the kind of man to get turned down. Ultimately, he would give Bislin a permanent job with the paper at a rumored annual salary of $3,000, an enormous sum for the time. So, at 6 p.m. on November 14th, just eight and a half hours after Nellie Bly set sail from New York, Elizabeth Bislin would depart by rail. Now, Nellie Bly was not just trying to best Phileas Fogg, but she would now have to beat a real-life challenger, Elizabeth Bislin of Cosmopolitan. The race around the world was on. And the ironic thing is that Nellie Bly didn't even know that the race existed, as it had been conjured up by John Brisbane Walker mere hours after her departure. It was, in all honesty, kind of an a-hole thing to do. I mean, Bly may have conducted herself differently knowing that she was now in a competition, but she did not, and for quite a while, she would be blissfully unaware to the challenge that had been set in front of her. For now, she was set on rounding the world in less than 80 days, nothing more. Now, I want to get back to Bly and her journey, and I want to mention two things. This podcast will focus on Nellie Bly and her steps. We will keep tabs on Elizabeth Bisland throughout the affair, but it is Bly who is our subject. Second, if you want to see a map of Nellie Bly's journey, you can find one on our website, explorespodcast.com. So, Nellie Bly was at sea aboard an ocean liner bound for England. Obviously, it was not going to be like the hardships faced by Magellan or Columbus, but still, it would be a challenge. Bly would be forced to leave her home and prepare for any experience that the world would present her. As a 25-year-old woman traveling alone, this was no small challenge. Now, the first issue that Bly would face was one that passengers had faced since antiquity, seasickness. 
Before the ship was even out of sight of land, she would find herself throwing up. One passenger would say of her dismissively, quote, and she's going around the world, end quote. Puking over the side of a vessel was not the way she imagined starting out her trip. However, as an honored guest on the ocean liner, everyone knew about her goal to best Phileas Fogg, and thus she traveled in first class and would dine at the captain's table. Determined to show her mettle, she went to dinner that first night, only to have to take leave three different times to go and throw up. The ship's officers gave her props for fighting through the seasickness. And fight she did. With time, Bly got her sea legs, and she was able to enjoy the voyage. She was, after all, traveling in first class. The days of long, uncomfortable sea voyages were over, if you could pay for it. As a first-class passenger, Bly would have access to a music room, food all day long, games, such as shuffleboard, and access to the upper decks to enjoy the day. There was also a smoking room, but that was just for the men. It should be noted that Bly never ventured into the lower decks of the ship, where the poorer people were packed in. She took to her comfortable environment and said almost nothing of the lower-class passengers, which is somewhat strange since she had often fought for them so much as a writer. The Augusta Victoria was due in Southampton on the southern shore of England on November 21st at 10 a.m. However, as the great ocean liner sailed east, it fell behind schedule. When the morning of November 21st rolled around, there was no land in sight. Bly would finally arrive in Southampton the next morning at 2 a.m., 16 hours late. Her trip was already in jeopardy. Now, before we continue with Nellie Bly, I want to talk a bit about the woman who was challenging her on her round-the-world journey. As we noted earlier, Elizabeth Bisland departed the same day as Bly, only eight and a half hours later. She would take a train to Chicago, then another to Omaha, and then a third to San Francisco. Bisland and her publisher, John Brisbane Walker, had set up an itinerary that they calculated could get her back to New York several days ahead of Bly. In his paper, Walker proposed a $1,000 bet against the world that Bisland would beat Bly. The world turned down the offer. Upon reaching San Francisco, Bisland would have to wait for two days to depart. Her newspaper, Cosmopolitan, tried to bribe a steamship company into leaving earlier, but without success. As I noted earlier, I don't want to spend too much time with Bisland, but we will sort of hop back and forth and keep tabs on her. So, back to Bly. At Southampton, Nellie Bly was met by the world's London correspondent, Tracy Greaves. Bly had missed the one o'clock train, but Greaves proved to be resourceful and secured a spot on a mail train heading to London. The train would pull into England's capital city on November 22, 1889, at 5 a.m. During her ride to London, Bly was informed that Jules Verne, the celebrated author of Around the World in 80 Days, was interested in meeting her. Verne lived in Amiens, France. Bly's paper saw a great public relations opportunity. I mean, Nellie Bly meeting the guy who was the inspiration for her trip? That's PR that's too good to pass up. It would sort of represent Vern giving Bly his blessing. And Bly understood the significance of the meeting as well, and agreed to the side trip. The only problem would be timing the visit. Bly would first head to the world's office in London to send and receive messages. She would then rush to the American consulate in London to get her permanent passport. Interestingly, she would give her age as 22, when she was actually 25. Next would be a train ride to the coast and a ferry across the English Channel. After that, it was a short train ride to Amiens. I want to point out that at this time, Bly still had not received word about the race that Cosmopolitan had instigated. So across the French countryside went Bly. In Amiens, Bly, who was still being escorted by her co-worker Tracy Greaves, was greeted at the train station by Jules Verne and his wife, Honorine. 
At this time, Jules Verne was one of the most famous authors in the world, and is considered one of the greatest writers of science fiction and fantasy to have ever lived. When he met Bly, he was 61 years old. The meeting had actually been arranged by the New York World, although the newspaper played it up as if Verne had requested the meeting. Joining Bly, the Vernes, and Tracy Greaves was an interpreter from Paris, as Verne spoke some English, but his wife did not. From the train station, the group headed to the Verne estate, a coach ride of about 20 minutes. Bly rode with Honorine Verne, a ride she described as awkward since neither could understand the other. At the Verne home, Bly engaged in polite conversation with her hosts. Jules Verne talked to her about her proposed route and asked why she was not traveling across India, from Bombay to Calcutta, like his literary creation, Phileas Fogg, had done in his famous book. Bly replied, quote, because I am more anxious to save time than a young widow, end quote. The response was in reference to Verne's novel, where Fogg rescues an Indian princess from death. As for Verne, he seemed amused and a bit amazed that Bly was attempting to best Fogg. His wife, however, reportedly approved of Bly, calling her a strong and energetic young woman. Honorine Verne even offered up a bet to her husband that Bly would successfully complete her trip. It was a bet that Jules Verne turned down. Find herself in the presence of one of the world's greatest novelists, Bly could not help but to ask to see his writing room, perhaps wondering if there was some magic in it. He would show her his study, and she would find it surprisingly austere, just a simple desk, a couple of bookcases, and some trinkets from his travels. It was not that different from her own office, simple and efficient. Bly would also get a tour of Verne's library, which she loved. It was said that Verne had a collection of 25,000 volumes. The meeting with Verne was concluded with a glass of wine. Verne had this to say, quote, If you do it in 79 days, I shall applaud you with both hands. End quote. The meeting with the Vernes was short and sweet. Bly headed back to the train station in Amiens to make sure that they didn't miss the scheduled departure. If she missed the train, it would not be back for another week. The trip to meet Jules Verne had been a calculated risk on the part of Bly and her newspaper. If she had missed the train to Italy, she would have been delayed for days but the reward would turn out to be great. Nellie Bly, the plucky American journalist, visiting the great Jules Verne, the man who had inspired her venture. It was irresistible. As for Nellie Bly, she was generally honored to have met Jules Verne and his wife. She had been impressed by their kindness, in particular that shown by Verne's wife, Honorine. Thankfully, the train from Amiens to Calais, a 75-mile stretch, did not run into any delays. Bly arrived at the train station in Calais just two hours before she was scheduled to depart on the next leg of her journey. So, with little time to spare, Nellie Bly, bag in hand, rushed from one train to the other. Her newspaper colleague, Tracy Greaves, would leave her at this juncture. Bly would be on her own going forward. Her next stop was Brindisi, Italy. The date was November 23, 1889. Now, that is going to wrap up Bly's story for today but I want to do a quick check-in with Elizabeth Bislin, the woman challenging her in this round-the-world race. Bislin left San Francisco on November 21st on a fast steamship, the Oceanic, bound for Japan. She would run into several days of storms, but the ship was fast and she made good time. In reality, Bislin's plan to beat Bly was solid, and as she plowed toward Japan, riding luxury just like Nellie Bly, she was confident in her chances for success. So to wrap up, Elizabeth Bislin was on the Pacific Ocean heading for Japan, while Nellie Bly was boarding a train in Calais bound for Italy. One final and important thing I want to mention about the Bly-Bislin competition, it was Nellie Bly that the public took to in this race. Bly's paper, The New York World, was a daily publication, while Bislin's paper, Cosmopolitan, was monthly. That meant the public would never really take to the drama of Bislin's journey. 
The public wasn't asking for a monthly update. They wanted to live and breathe the drama of the journey with the person partaking in it. They were waiting every day to see where Bly was and what adventure she had undertaken. All this meant that Nellie Bly, and not Elizabeth Bislin, was the nation's hero at this time, and it was she who they were rooting for. Okay, so that is it for today, the first part in our series on Nellie Bly and the race around the world. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.